The very evidence that we believe what we sing is that we, in fact, turn to God's word to hear what he's promised, and that by his spirit he might illuminate our minds and our hearts to lay hold of it by faith, and that we might respond accordingly to his good pleasure. So let's do what we've just sung and open our copy of God's word. Let's turn this morning to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. We're considering this portion of scripture, Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. If you don't happen to have a copy of God's word, uh, we would encourage you to follow along and read as we read and as we make our way through the text, and you'll find a Bible for your use uh, there in front of you in the chair. Um, you'll find this portion of Scripture on page 57. Exodus chapter 20, considering verses 4 through 6 this morning. Let's begin reading in verse 1. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Would you pray with me? Let's ask the Lord that he would help us as we've heard his word and that we would consider it rightly. Father, we confess that our only confidence this morning is that you are God, we are not, and that you have spoken clearly, plainly, sufficiently within your word, and that within your word we hear of these promises. We hear of these promises of who you are and what you shall do and what most graciously you do in your Son. So we pray that you would help us this morning as we have heard your word and it is here before us. Lord, would you help us to receive your word as it is, the very word of God? Would you help us in such a way that our posture towards it, our thoughts towards it, our responses towards it would reflect what it truly is? Lord, help us to see that these are words of life. Help us to see that your word is to be treasured above all the treasure that we could amass on this planet. 
That Your Word is sweeter than anything that we could enjoy with our lips. Because to taste and to see that You are good is what we long to know and what we ultimately must know. So Father, by the ministry of Your Word and Spirit, would You help us to see who You are and what You've declared to us? And would You cause Your Word to be effective and fruitful among us? Lord, would You not only shape us as Your church and form our understanding of who You are and how You are to be worshipped, but Lord, would You reveal Yourself in such a way that You must be worshipped? Lord, would You grant by Your kindness to reveal Your glory in the face of Christ this morning? that we might see and know and place our trust in you. Help us, for we are weak, but Lord, we are confident in your strength. Amen. Where there's a will, there is a way. And whatever it takes, we'll get the job done. You can't stop progress. And most of the time, the ends will justify the means. Statements just like that, are often the context for much of our own Western history, and they find their source in what's most often known as pragmatism. Pragmatism is more concerned with what works, overcoming obstacles, overcoming hindrances. Identify the problem, fix it, and move on. Pragmatism is most often concerned more with short-term thinking than long-term concerns. Should the principles that have shaped much of our own history, practices, and context be the same shaping influence that shapes our worship of God or the ordering of our churches? Is God a pragmatist? More concerned about the ends than our particular means. What I'm asking is, does God care how we worship? As we read this second commandment, remember that Israel lives in a particular context where it's normative to worship God according to images and various representations. The surrounding nations have imagined all sorts of ideas, all sorts of ceremonies, all sorts of traditions as to how their gods are to be worshipped. But Yahweh says, I'm not only telling you who I am, the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, I'm also telling you how I will be worshipped. If the first commandment forbids worshipping anyone other than God, then we could say the second commandment forbids worshiping God in the wrong way. And this command it often gets pointed to as grounds for the removal of all images of the Godhead, and that's certainly included. But is that all that is included? Is that all that the Lord our God is intending to communicate to his people? Have we considered the greater purpose the long-term focus, the implications of such a command is this. I hope we'll see is that when we consider this command in the light of Christ, that we find a far greater redemptive truth that's contained here in this second commandment, truths that are revealed in Christ and that bring tremendous blessing upon the believer. Yes, God cares how we worship him because the exaltation of his glory 
and our greatest good is wrapped up in worshiping him according to his design. What is at stake is God's glory and our experience of his glory, which is the greatest good that we could know. And so if you are concerned about laying hold of the greatest good that God would have for you, then you should pay attention to what God's word says about himself and how he is to be known. Consider how the second commandment helps us to see the supreme authority of God, how it also reveals to us the zealous love of God, and then the revealed image of God. From this second commandment, the authority of God, the love of God, and the image of God. Consider what we learn here, first of all, in regards to the supreme authority of God. God, in a few short words, determines how he's to be worshipped. Upon telling us that he's the Lord our God that must be worshipped, back in verses 2 and 3, that's the first commandment, he does not then leave us to decide upon the manner in which he will be worshipped. Because of his supreme authority as God, he has the right to tell us how he is worshipped. Right? If he really is the one who is sovereign over all things, the Lord your God, then he also has the right to say, this is how I will be worshipped. The weight of this is felt when we see a repeated phrase. It's a phrase that's repeated throughout these 12 verses. It's the Lord your God. Verse 2, verse 5 that we just read, verse 7, verse 8, verse 12. Throughout this section, the repeated emphasis of Yahweh, your God. Yahweh, your God. The Lord, your God. Each of these commandments are tied to this understanding of who this God is that commands. He's Yahweh. He's the I Am. He's the self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal, holy, sovereign, most wise God. And such a being has an inherent right to order his worship and his worshipers as he wills. Okay, so what does this command forbid? What do we see when we consider the supreme authority of God? What is he actually saying no to? God says we're not to make images to represent him in any form, nor are we to worship images of any kind. God is spirit, and he has no form that we could rightly capture. And even if we did, it would be so horribly disfiguring and shameful of a representation that it would mar any sort of likeness of his true glory and worth. Therefore, God forbids the crafting or forming of any sort of image of other deities of himself, Yahweh, the true God, or any other created being to aid in worship. Moses will later explain Deuteronomy chapter 12. When the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations whom you go in to dispossess, remember they're right on the border when they're getting ready to cross over into the promised land, and 
Moses huddles everybody up, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their God, saying, how did these nations serve their gods, that I also may do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Moses is essentially opening back up the second commandment and saying, let's think about this and how this applies as we eventually step foot into the promised land. There's going to be many nations around you. They're going to worship in many different ways. And he says, be careful that you don't start looking over the fence and saying, how are they doing it over there? That we might do that over here. God says we are not to make images to represent him in any form, nor are we to worship images of any kind. Now, to be clear... Our God is not against beauty. He gave clear instructions, actually, for the tabernacle, the place in which he would be worshipped. And if you read those descriptions, don't skip over them in your reading plan. If you read those descriptions, what will you find? Finding even later in Exodus as God gifts two men to be artisans to help build this tabernacle, well, you'll find images of palm trees, angels, pomegranates, flowers, the ark itself covered by two cherubim atop its covering. No, God's not against beauty. What God forbids is crafting images in such a way to represent him in a physical form in order to be looked upon or any other created object to aid in his worship. You shall not do that. Now, the problem with framed paintings of movies, dramatic series, retelling of the life of Christ. The problem with those is that we, whether we realize it or not, are forming in our minds an idea of Jesus. He has a certain skin tone. That he has hair of a certain color, a certain length. His particular mannerisms. Even an inflection of voice. So that when we close our eyes and we pray or we lift our voices to sing, the image in our mind's eye is eventually shaped by these particular visual details. Instead, God would have us to pray and to read and to worship through the eyes of faith, laying hold of what we see in his character, in his ministry, in his offices, in his word and works. And though they're ever so sincere and well-intending, God forbids the use of images to represent his likeness or his aids in his worship. It's not pleasing to him. And by implication, neither is anything else that he has not sanctioned. More on that in a minute. What he forbids but what is he prescribing here? What's he encouraging? Well, God's very careful. He's very precise, and he chooses to reveal himself to his people in a particular way. Nothing is happenstance with the Lord our God. He calls Moses up to this mountain, and every detail of that experience is ordained and orchestrated by this God, who, by the way, is not limited in any way. So there's nothing that you read here that he's saying, oh, man, Didn't exactly execute as I wanted, but we'll make it work. 
every detail upon this mountain how the Lord wants. Yes, there's flashing of thunder, there's blasts of trumpet, there's fire and smoke, the ground shakes, but the great reveal behind all of that, what is the apex of this? A voice. God speaks. It's what it says there in verse 1. God spoke. Would you have been surprised if you were there at the base of the mountain? The peals of thunder, the smoke, the trumpet blast, the shake, Moses ascending, going up, and then what's going to be the great reveal? What is this? Who is this? We heard him speak. God reveals himself by his word for good reason. Again, Moses is going to comment on this very moment here on Mount Sinai. Deuteronomy 4, verse 15. Listen to what Moses connects for God's people. Again, therefore watch yourselves very carefully. Since you saw no form on that day, this day right here, on that day that the Lord God spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. You saw no form on that day that the Lord your God spoke. And then he goes on, Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. What does Moses say? You saw no form, but you heard a voice. Interesting. Just as God did in creation, his word sets the scope and sequence of how his creation is to be ordered. And here on Mount Sinai, he speaks again, and instead of a form that they could see, an attempt to fashion for future worship. Oh, remember that day, Exodus 20? Yeah, you want to see? I've got a little representation right here. Instead of some form that they could create and fashion for further worship, it's by the voice of God that he makes himself known. This is God's design. For good reason, the word of God is to hold the central place among the people of God. He will be known through the ear more than the eye. What we hear by the reading of his words is to be the primary medium by which he's known. And as we've been told, the medium is the message. There's a reason that God does this. The reason the pulpit is front and center spotlighted and elevated is not because the mind, the man behind it has some sort of inferiority complex, but because of the superiority of the word he is to be proclaiming. God has prescribed that he would primarily be known and worshipped through his revealed words. And so when we worship, it is the word that fills and shapes all that we do in his worship. And that's why the central emphasis of what we seek to do as we gather as God's people is to read the word, sing the word, pray the word, preach the word, and even see the word in the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. What he forbids, what he 
prescribes, but also what does he imply by this? When we consider the supreme authority of God, we should also hear what this implies. For much of the evangelical church, the emphasis in corporate worship is this maxim, it's the heart that matters, not the form. Where do we get this? Maybe you've heard this. Typically, I think people see the problem of formalism and they want to exalt the importance of the heart. It's a reaction against formalism. God sees the heart. That's really all that matters. Tell that to Uzzah. Do you know the story of Uzzah? He was struck down because of this error. He assumed that his hand was cleaner than the dirt. And he placed his hand upon the ark so that it did not fall from the cart as the oxen stumbled. No doubt he had the best motive. But his unthinking irreverence, it cost him his life. Yeah, God sees the heart, but if God has also given to us instructions as to how he is to be worshipped, then that should be of concern as well. So we're not exalting one over the other. It's not an overcorrection against formalism to say there is no form. Certainly the heart must be at the center of what we're doing because he is seeking worshipers of spirit in spirit and truth. But does that mean there is no form, that it's to each his own? So what is the implication? That God's design, not people's creativity or pragmatic decisions, determine how God will be worshipped. Worship in its content, in its motivation, in its aim, it's to be determined by God alone. Certainly, we, right here this morning, we do not approach the Ark of the Covenant uh, nor the temple courts because we stand as God's people as members of the New Covenant. But we would be guilty of unthinking irreverence if we assumed that God no longer cares how he's to be worshipped. It might be normative for surrounding cultures and nations to decide how their gods will be worshipped. But the Lord your God regulates how he is to be worshipped. And that's why historically Protestant Reformed Christians have referred to the importance of this principle called the regulative principle as it comes to our approach to corporate worship. We hear this even in our church confession. Second London Confession, chapter 22, paragraph 1. The acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imagination and devices of men nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. We will worship the triune God, according to the way that he is designed to be worshipped. Okay, well, where do we see that in Scripture? Well, for one, there are these repeated instructions here within the book of Exodus as to the building of the tabernacle, that everything should be done according to the pattern shown to you. You'll hear that again as we make our way through Exodus, particularly in 25. 
Go home and read the story of Nadab and Abihu and their offering of strange fire. Find that in Leviticus 10. We ought to consider Saul's non-prescribed worship and God's rejection of him, where God said, Saul, it's better to obey than just to sacrifice. 1 Samuel 15. Anything in the New Testament? Yeah, Jesus had a few things to say to the Pharisees and their worship, what he referred to as the tradition of the elders. You can find that in Matthew 15. And don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus critiques the Pharisees for being so overly wound, too tightly tied to caring about God's word too much that you guys just need to relax. It's actually the opposite. They care about God's word so little that they are comfortable with exalting their traditions and laying burdens upon men's back and saying, you must do this. And Jesus rebukes them openly and repeatedly for such. That's not how I will be worshipped. But each of these examples just tell us of a rejection of worship that's being offered according to the principles and the instructions given to us in in Scripture. In other words, let's worship God the way he tells us to worship him, no less and no more. At the heart of this principle and the application of the second commandment, friends, I want you to hear this, is freedom, not restriction. Does that sound strange? We can only worship God the way he says, no more and no less. That sounds rather restrictive. Well, if you've observed church history for any amount of century, or even observed modern worship practices, you should rejoice to know that God is so wise and that he says, I actually want to free you from any sort of burden that anybody would put upon you and say, this is how you must worship me. This principle has been given to us in God's word and applied by God's people as a means of liberation, keeping our consciences clear and not bound by traditions of men, and laid open only and bound to the word of God. When we gather as God's people, we come as a liberated people. And the only thing that should bind our conscience, and by that I mean you must do this, would be the very same elements that we find God saying you must do this. What if your pastors announced that each Sunday you all must participate in a drama that retells the gospel story? Now, your reaction to that, either excitement, like, I love drama, (laughs) or hatred because you are mortified by drama, your reaction really isn't the point. As God said, that's how he should be worshipped. That's the issue. Because I can think of several things that I don't overly get excited about in my natural self. So my feelings about the matter aren't really the judge of, should we do that or not? As God said, he would be known and his people would be worshiping him through interpretive dance or drama. Or what if we said, look, if you're going to be admitted into the house of God, you have to wear a particular set and particular type of clothing before you enter the doors. All the regulative principle is doing is applying what's prescribed in the second commandment and unpacked in the rest of Scripture. 
The Bible is our rule for how we worship God because the Bible is our rule for how we are to think about God. And so as new covenant worshipers, we're not looking to the old covenant and ceremonial law to include priestly robes or bloody sacrifices or the courts of the temple for a building plan or how many feasts we should celebrate each year. Nor are we looking to keep pace with surrounding culture as to how unbelievers bow down to consumerism or to self-infatuation, to emotionalism, experientialism. How do they do it? We are looking to the positive instructions of the New Testament. What has God prescribed that we would do as we gather on the first day of the week in our corporate gatherings? What has God actually said? You should do this. Read, pray, preach, sing, see. Those are five elements that are really helpful distillation of the commands, the positive commands that were given in the New Testament that this is what God's people are to do. 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. We're commanded to read. And if you just want to remember the context of Timothy, Paul writes that to Timothy so that we would know how to conduct ourselves in the household of God. Read. Jesus said, Matthew 21, My house shall be called a house of prayer. Well, if Jesus wants his house to be a house of prayer, that probably should be on the list of what we're commanded to do. Read, pray. Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. It's Paul's word to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2. Read, pray, preach. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We are commanded as God's people to exhort one another through our singing. And each time we come to the Lord's table or the waters of baptism, we are seeing the same word made visible. The commands that we have in Matthew 28 and elsewhere, and Acts 2, but the reminder of the Lord's Supper and baptism. So what are we saying? Well, we're saying that from these elements, read, pray, preach, sing, see, we have liberty in considering their form, the way in which they're carried out, and the circumstances. By that, we mean the incidental matters that must be decided upon, but are not directly commanded in God's word. Let's give an example. We're commanded to include this element of singing when we gather. The form of singing, songs, hymns, spiritual songs. Are we going to sing five songs or six? Are we going to sing with a guitar or a piano? Um, Well, that's more the form. How are we going to do it? And the circumstance, should we start at 10.30 or 11.00? Should we sing three hymns and then read a scripture? That's the circumstance in which it's carried out. The element, non-negotiable. The form and the circumstances, that's where God's people have liberty and exercise the wisdom that's given to them. 
elements, forms, and circumstances. The regulative principle is not about stifling us into some narrow-minded, limited practice, but liberating us from the imaginations of men and women who would bind our consciences and heap heavy burdens upon men's backs, which are too heavy to carry. We only do what God prescribes, no more, no less. This commandment says more. It tells us not only reveals to us not only the supreme authority of God, but consider what it shows of, of the zealous love of God. Did you hear this back in verse 5? You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. God is the faithful husband who will not be mocked, and he testifies of his zealous love for his people in his own name. To hear that God is a jealous God, that might need some unpacking. Think of it this way. To assume that God takes little to no concern for how he's worshipped, it's on par with assuming that a loving husband takes little concern for the faithfulness of his wife. The right understanding of this term jealousy, it's filled out and unpacked within Old Testament scripture, is God reveals himself as the bridegroom and Israel as the bride. Right? That's an image we see throughout the Old Testament. And so what God essentially says is that her turning away from him to worship other gods or to bring other gods into his worship is akin to bringing another man into the bridal chamber or to her sneaking out into the middle of the night to rendezvous with the stranger. God calls that adultery. He calls it unfaithfulness in describing such profane worship. God is supremely pure and holy, and he cannot share his glory with another, even if someone is sincerely aiming to represent the one true God, though wrongly. And so in this sense, he is the zealous husband, jealous of his bride and jealous of his own worship. And so for God's people to assume that we can worship God according to our own imaginations, that we can somehow just take up practices and habits from surrounding culture, downplaying the commands that God has given to us, that is wildly presumptive. God says he doesn't take it lightly because he includes some promises and warnings here. Now, this is not a sweep-it-under-the-rug scenario. Because what does he say? Well, he's not saying that subsequent generations must pay for the sins of their fathers. But what he's saying is that this punishment will fall on those who walk according to their father's steps. This is not a generational curse who would people would just somehow be fatalistically locked into. Your dad did this, guess what, great-grandson, sorry. Notice the words love and hate. Those who continue to walk in this way, showing their hatred for God, he's not going to sweep it under the rug, because those who continue to walk in this way, they will be dealt with in the same way as their fathers. But in contrast to this third and fourth generation that he mentions of hateful disobedience, God promises his steadfast love to be given to thousands of generations who love his name and who honor his commandments. Do you hear the contrast there? 
love and hate, three to four generations, a thousand generations. As you hear that, don't get out your calculator and figure out the exact math. It's, it's a, given to us to understand the weight of what's being said. Put three and four in your hand and then a thousand in your hand. What does God delight in? Oh, he delights in mercy. He doesn't sweep sin under the rug. But he says, what I want you to know, the lasting flavor, the lasting sound that ought to ring in your ears is mercy. I delight in mercy. So by this we are to hear that though the Lord will discipline, he delights in mercy. And while a handful of generations will bear the zealous judgment of disobedience, a thousand generations are going to delight in his mercy. So from this, what we see is the motive for the second commandment. God, the Lord our God, is zealous for his holy love. The glorious perfections of who he is determine not only what we are to think about him, but our right worship of him. So, the supreme authority of God, the zealous love of God, but all of this points us one place further. The revealed image of God. The fact of the matter is that while God forbids our making of images in order to worship him, he has made himself known to us. We don't need to fashion images of God because God has already created them. What do I mean? Consider God's formation of Adam. The implications of weight of Genesis 1.26 are quite striking. Read the second commandment, and then read Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. What's the big idea in that text? Man is to be the image of God. Man is to be in God's likeness. We are the divinely chosen beings formed by God to reveal what he is like. Created in his image and likeness. That is what your purpose is, friend. Whether you realize it or not, God has created you to reflect his image because he's the creator and you're the created one. What might your life look like if you understood what it means to be an image bearer of God? How might your life change? What are the things that you see in your life that say that actually doesn't really look like God? Those would be the things that God would call you to repent of and confess and trust in Christ. Now, the original image has been marred by sin, but even in his sin, man retains a fractured yet distorted image of God. And some of you have felt the struggle in this. Perhaps you've heard that God is to be known as your heavenly father and to his children, yet you look at your earthly father and however good he may be, you struggle to make that leap. Sometimes, grievously, image bears of God present a disfigured and twisted picture of the image that they're to represent. Thankfully, this is no surprise to God. 
He's actually had a plan in place since before the foundation of the earth to set that image right. Consider the second Adam and what he reveals. The first Adam corrupted and distorted the image of God that was set within him. There is a second Adam. By God's design, Adam was a type, a picture, a shadow of the one who was to come. Those are Paul's words in Romans 5.14. When Jesus came, what happened? Well, the word became flesh, making known the Father to us. When Jesus came, what happened? Christ is the image of the invisible God. Colossians 1.14. And Christ, who is the image of God, reveals the glory of God, shining into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Do you want to know what God is like? Then look to Jesus, because all that the scriptures reveal to us of Christ in him show us who this God is. Hear him in his compassion as he invites all who are thirsty to come to him and drink. That's revealing the heart of the Father for sinners. Look to him as he pronounces his ability and his willingness to forgive sins. And consider what he reveals as he hangs upon the cross. Not only his love for his people, but also the revelation of God's wrath upon sin. Christ has come to reveal the image of the Father to us as the image of the invisible God. Put your trust in him. Lay hold of him by faith. Believe upon him as the one who is not only willing, but able to forgive sins. The one in whom God's wrath is poured out upon for the sins of his people. But there's another image that God has seen fit to reveal himself in. Consider, thirdly, the recreation of God's image among his people. While the image of God was shattered and broken through the rebellion of Adam, and while Christ is the full and perfect and picture of that image, God is also working this very morning to recreate that image in his people because of their union with Christ. God saves us. God changes us. But what sort of image is God forming you into? We have a verse for that. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. It's Romans 8, 29. Christian, God's purpose in graciously electing you for salvation is to conform you then to the image of his son. To form the image of the son in you. God is seeking to make himself known through his people. It's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. Many Christians clamor to make the next movie or the next series that will display Christ to the watching world, and yet God in his wisdom, he's chosen a different way. In fact, if Christians really and truly wanted the unbelieving world to know the glory of God in Christ, they would be better served by looking to him as he's revealed in his word and taking seriously the commands that he gives to join a church and faithfully follow after Christ. 
because it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God is displayed, and it's in Christians that the image of God is being formed and seen. Healthy churches filled with born-again image bearers of God display the, the glory of God to a watching world much better than a movie or a dramatic series ever could. What do you need to know about God? Well, He has seen fit to reveal Himself, not only in His Son, but He's conforming us to the image of His Son, so that as they see your good works, they might glorify your Father in heaven. The blunt fact of the matter is that God is much better artist than you or I. <laughs> and when he commands that we should not make any image of him, it's because he does a much better job than we could by our measly human efforts. We could say that God holds the exclusive rights and licensing to how his image will be portrayed and used. And when those rights are violated, he takes it very seriously. It may be normative for surrounding nations to decide how their gods will be worshipped, but the Lord your God has revealed himself fully and sufficiently and gloriously through Jesus Christ. So does God care how he's worshipped? Yes. Because his glory and our highest good is what's at stake. He's gone so far to order our worship that he's given us his son so that we might actually know how good and glorious he is and that we might trust him supremely. So when we come to the second commandment, we do not come to a restrictive wet blanket that's just thrown upon our gatherings. We actually come to an open door that frees us from the bondage of others' personal preferences or creative licensing and an invitation to revere God's name as we pray and read, preach and sing and preach and see what God has given to us in the revelation of his word through his son. So let's look to him now in prayer. Father, we rejoice to know that you have not only told us that you are Yahweh, that you are the great I am, the only one who's worthy to be worshipped, but Father, you've been so kind to tell us how you are to be worshipped. Father, thank you for the revelation of your word. Thank you for the illumination of your spirit. Thank you for the wisdom that is found in Christ and the great purposes that you give to us in your word. Lord, help us to revere and honor your name, that we might take seriously not only the principle that you ought to be worshipped, but the practice and what you've set forth. Lord, our great desire as your people is that you would be exalted. And as your people, we want every ounce of goodness that you have for us, that you've revealed to us, and that you delight to give to us. So, Father, continue to order our hearts. Continue to order our loves. Continue to order what we will and think, all conformed, renewed, according to your word that you might continue to form the image of your Son in us, that we might walk in every good work that you have for us. Lord, do this that you might be revered and honored and that you might receive the praise and glory for it, we pray. Amen.